All right. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you, Father, so much for your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. Uh, we ask and pray, Father, Lord, that as you've inhabited our praises this morning, that you would now inhabit your scriptures, Father, as we read them, uh, Lord, as we speak them aloud to one another, we pray that you would um, plant them in our hearts, Father, that our, that our hearts would be germinated with your love and with your truth and with your goodness, Father, and with the, the clarion call of salvation through Jesus Christ, and that when we go from this place, Father, it would resonate from our hearts to the world around us, Lord, and that we truly would become like uh, cities on a hill which cannot be hidden, Father, that we would be like candles put upon a shelf in a dark place, and uh, Lord, not by trying to be anything, Lord, but just simply by radiating your glory, Father, as we seek after your face and after we follow after Jesus Christ, Father, that that would be the testimony uh, that we give and that would be the testimony of our lives that would endure, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done, for all that you're doing, and for all that you will do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 21, and we started this morning uh, <laughs> with some cheery thoughts on unsolved murder, uh, on people being taken captive after warfares, um, and I talked a little bit about the fact that people should not be countenanced, but instead we should see everything through the lens of who God is and what God's Word has to say. And I said that because some of these areas of Scripture that we go through, it's hard for us to understand with, with our current sensibilities. And we talked a little bit about the fact that, you know, we live in a culture and a society where people are now looking backwards to things that were done in the past that were wrong and seeking to just completely eradicate those memories and, and destroy that history from being because of the wrongdoings that, that lived there, that dwelled there. And as we go through Scripture, we see things taking place in the ancient world that God is dealing with that to us seem awful. I mean, the fact that there has to be a whole section of the Scriptures where when you go into a place and you put the city to the sword and you see there a girl that you want to take for your own, here's how that has to look. And we can look at that, and a lot of people do look at that and say, you see, you see, the Bible's not a book of love. The Bible is a horrible book that condones all of these different atrocities. The Bible even has been used as an excuse to condone slavery. And here's what I would always say to the skeptics of the Bible and people who would, who would have that argument. God deals with the world as it is, not as he wishes it would be. There's going to come a day when Jesus Christ is going to come back He's going to receive us to himself, and there's going to be a seven-year period of judgment on planet Earth where God brings about judgment on mankind and on this world for all of the wickedness, for all of the bloodshed, and for all the evil that has been done. We read some of the verses this morning, and I'll reread them to you. Uh, in Isaiah 26, 21, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Ecclesiastes 3.15, that, that which is has already been, and that which is to be has already been, and God requires an account 
of what is past. And so the day is going to come when Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, is going to literally enter into Jerusalem, sit on the throne of David, and from there rule the entire world. And there will be no more injustice, and there will be no more murder, and there will be no more wickedness, and there will be no more man hurting man in order to lift himself above other people. Jesus Christ is going to put a stop and an end to all of that. But the reality, our reality, is that we live in a fallen world. And you find yourself today a part of a fallen world. And not only that, you find your own body and your own life in some regards a part of a fallen world. There is always going to be injustice. There is always going to be sickness. There is always going to be poverty. There is always going to be darkness and wickedness. And Jesus Christ did not come to eradicate those things in the world, but instead to eradicate those things within our hearts. So that in my life, as I reflect Jesus Christ and as I follow after him, there ought not to be any hatred within me. There ought not to be any injustice within me. There ought not to be anything that defiles or that is wicked or that is unclean within me. And we understand that in and of ourselves, that is an impossible task. The, the, very, the very fact of the matter is, is I, that I am a sinful man. I have a dark heart, just as the scripture says, that the heart of a man is exceedingly wicked and beyond finding out who can know it. I, the Lord, alone search the heart and mind of a man. And we know these things about ourselves. And so, as Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so here we are today on Sunday morning, gathered here together in this place, and here's the reason for it. We open up the Word of God and we read God's laws and we read God's words and we acknowledge in ourselves that we are dealing here, God, just as God was dealing in the Old Testament and just as God was dealing in the New Testament in the first century church with a fallen world, we are in the same way dealing with a fallen world that we live in. And yet, the truths and the principles and the righteousness of God transcends time and speaks to us from time times past, even into the time we live today, and we can acknowledge that God is good, God is righteous, God is holy, and we are not. And so why are we here together today? To read about the truth of God's word, to know what is his good, pleasing, and perfect will, and to encourage one another in that. And as the scripture says, and all the more as you see that day approaching, I am certainly no prophet, okay? I am a sprinkler fitter by trade, not a prophet, okay? Even the pastor gig, it's part-time, all right? So I don't make prophecies, I don't make predictions, and if you listen to any prophecies and predictions I make, the joke's on you, okay? I have, and maybe you have too, a feeling, and, and, and I say this and take into account, you know, the first century church, they believed that Nero was the Antichrist, Okay, uh, so we don't know God's heart. We don't know God's mind. And, and it seems to us that this has got to be the last generation before Jesus comes back, right? And guess what the last generation thought? And guess what the generation before that thought? And yet, Jesus Christ and his return is called our blessed hope. And Peter rebukes scoffers that will arise in the last days saying, where is his appearing? Ever since the beginning, things have gone on as, they, as they've been. Nothing's changed. Where is this appearing of Jesus that our fathers have spoken for? 
and they know not that God's word is true and that it, the day is going to come. Within every generation, there ought to be an expectancy of the return of Jesus Christ. And there ought to be in each one of us a stirring ourselves and stirring one another up towards righteousness in Jesus Christ and encouraging one another in the faith. And I say all that as, a, as kind of a, uh, a disclaimer to say this. I really think we're in the last days, man. I look around and I see what's happening, in, in not just in the United States of America, but in the entire world and what's happening in the nation of Israel and the nations around Israel and I say to myself, my goodness gracious, it doesn't seem like it can be much longer. Not only that, we see what's happening in our nation as it concerns the faith, right? As it concerns the truth of the gospel, not only the gospel, but the truth of the word of God and the things that the word of God says and the truths and the principles that the word of God stands upon are no longer okay in the world that you live in. In the United States of America, at the workplace and in schools and in universities across this country, what this book has to say is wickedness. As the scripture prophesied, evil in the last days will be taken for good and good will be taken for evil. And so you're called unloving and you're called a bigot and you're called all of these horrible names if you believe the things that God's word says are true. And I don't see any escape for the church of Jesus Christ out of some sort of persecution, and I'm not talking about China, and I'm not talking about Iran. However, I will say this, what makes us better than them? Satan throughout history and throughout the ages has sought to stamp out the word of God and to stamp out his people. And we live in a time and we live in a place now where the message that we preach is not only foolishness, it's always been foolishness to those who are perishing, but it has become to the point now where it is so repugnant to the people in our culture and in our society that they won't tolerate it. And how long is it going to be, how long is it going to be before the walls start to close in on the church of Jesus Christ. And people who really and truly stand on the word of God and the truth of the word of God are willing to stand up and be counted in spite of how they're going to be treated by their neighbors, by their family members, by, by their friends, by their co-workers, by the rest of the church. How long is it going to be? I have literally no idea, but I have this feeling that we're drawing closer and closer and closer to such a time. And so we have to then ask ourselves a question. We have to be real and honest with ourselves. Where do I stand? Where am I at? And it doesn't matter how righteous your life is. It doesn't matter how perfectly you walk. It doesn't matter about how many good things you do and how many rules that are in the Bible that you follow versus the ones that you don't follow. What matters is where is your heart? Our hearts are divided in this nation. Our hearts are divided. And I find this thing so true and so evident in my own life that often I, I feel like I'm living two lives. I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm never ashamed to believe in Jesus Christ. And I can tell you and everyone out in, in YouTube land, put a gun in my face and say, reject Jesus Christ. And I'll be like, pull the trigger three times. 
And I mean that with all of my heart. I will never deny Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my all in all. He is my everything. And I will never, ever, ever stop believing in Jesus Christ or preaching the truth. Okay? But that's easy to say and that's easy to believe. It's another thing as we live this life, as we go through this life, to do the things that go along with being a disciple of Jesus Christ and to live every day of our lives as such. I find in myself this, this, this horrible truth that so many days go by and I'm just living Frank Thomas's life. And it's, that's a good life. I try to do the right things. I love my family. I'm not into doing horrible things. I like to be nice to people. But every single day, I find myself waking up and saying, man, oh man, oh man, I'm not walking and following hard after Jesus Christ the way I want to. And what's more, the way he's called me to. And we live in a time and we live in a place where this world desperately, desperately needs to see the love and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pure, unadulterated, uncompromising, both in truth and standing on God's word, and the love that we express it in. And yet, I find my heart divided again. And I look around and I say, how can my heart be still divided? How can I still not be waking up every single day and every single thing that I do, whether I'm going to my job or whether I'm going to, 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 to out to eat with my family or whatever the case may be, that I'm not saying, all right, Lord, give opportunity, I pray. Help us to shine the light of Jesus Christ at the restaurant. You know, I remember when I was a kid, when we would go to the restaurant, we would always, always, always make sure to say grace always we would make sure to say grace. And it was, we were thankful for the food we were about to receive, the abundance, the over, overabundance of food that we were about to receive. But along with that, we wanted to make sure that everyone else in the restaurant saw us praying. Not to put it in their face, not to be like Sam say, oh Lord, we pray for all these wicked, miserable sinners in Chili's tonight. You know, not that, but just to, sit, just to see people bow, see us bowing our heads and saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for taking care of our family, Lord. We love you. Amen. You know, and there was something that was important to that. Important to that. You know, and then at some point in time, it becomes like, you know what? I don't want to be that guy putting it in people's face. We love the Lord. The Lord knows we're thankful. We don't have to make a public spectacle of it. Blah, 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 blah. And now I find myself, I feel like my dad again, where now I'm thinking to myself, maybe in the day and age we live in, we ought to be making sure that everybody around us, not in an obnoxious way, not in an overbearing way, not in a way where we belittle people or make people feel as though they're, 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 they're bad or they're unworthy. We're all unworthy. But we make it clear in every aspect of our lives, wherever we go, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And it ain't a theory. It's not a club I belong to. It is the status of my heart and it's where my soul resides and every single thing in my being and every single thing that I do both in my life and in my family's life is to the end of serving Jesus Christ, expanding his kingdom and loving everyone around us. Not just in making sure that the dirt bikes are running good for the summer, right? Or making, making sure that we, it's, it's, it's so often it's about what's next for me. And that's what my life revolves around. We've we got vacation coming up here and we're doing this trip there and this trip there. And some of it even is ministry stuff that I look forward to. But what's my end and what's my goal and where's my heart? And I find if I'm honest with myself that the truth is that I'm divided in my heart. 
that so much of it is just because it's what I love or what I like to do. And it's about my life and not about living my life for Jesus Christ in every way. And I don't say that, please, I, never, ever, ever am I trying to hammer on you guys or make you guys feel terrible about yourselves. The day and age that we live in, turn on the news, right? Turn on the news. Go on social media. Anywhere that you go, people are lost People are dying. My father, I used to roll my eyes when he would tell these, because uh, my dad would say the thing a million, billion, zillion, trillion times. You know, the whole church would collectively groan when dad would go into a, you know, and, and he would start, oh, we've heard the story a thousand times. You know? But he used to always say a hundred million times, if you saw someone standing on a train track, you guys remember this? Some of you old Midler Ave, anybody Midler Avers here? And, you saw, and there was a train coming, and you saw someone standing on the train tracks, to what end would you go to pull them off the track? And if you went over to him and said, buddy, there's a train coming, I'm all set. I'm all set. I'm good. Hey, I'm all set. No problems here. Don't worry about me. Not only am I worried about you, you're going to be flattened in two seconds if you don't get off this train track. No, I'm all good. I'm all good. And dad used to say, at what point in time would you grab them and pick them up and drag them, kicking and streaming off of the train tracks? Well, we can't bring people to Jesus Christ kicking and screaming against their will. But the point there is that my heart, in my heart, there ought to be an urgency. There ought to be an urgency for souls. There ought to be an urgency for people who don't know Jesus Christ and are living their lives to their own means and according to their own goodness and their own righteousness and the end therein, as the Bible says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end therein is death. Boy, if that's not the world we live in today. And if you try to tell people the way that you're going in, the way that you're walking in is leading you to death, they don't want to hear it. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be saying it. Uh, so anyway, the Bible, God deals with a world as it is and it's a fallen world, and it's a dark world. Like when the Pharisees came to Jesus Christ questioning about divorce, and Jesus said, unless there's marital unfaithfulness, a man should never divorce his wife. Well, why did Moses say write her a certificate of divorcement? And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts. So God made provisions to take care of people because even though you were the chosen race and the called nation, God knew that your hearts were still hard. And you weren't going to take care of people the way you ought to. And you weren't going to do the right things by your neighbor. And so God put all these things in the law to hold your feet to the fire on it. That's what we read about in Scripture. And so God's word is perfect. It's mankind that's not perfect. It's the world that's never perfect. So we talk about the laws concerning unsolved murder. We talk about the laws concerning female captives. How are they to be treated? Because in the culture in that day and age, back in those ancient civilization, those ancient times, they would go in and they would ransack a city and the things that they would do, you, you, know, I don't, you, you, you know, I don't have to sit here up here, stand up here and say what would go down. You know how it was and how things were and how things would go down. And God said to the people of Israel, not so with you. Now, certainly any of the Israelites who were God-fearing people would never, seek, seek, see, uh, would never even think to do that, those kind of things. In the first place, they would simply do what God had commanded them to do, execute the judgment that God had called upon those certain, those certain nations, and that would be the end of it. But God knew that there would be wicked and perverse and immoral people amongst them who would be seeking to do bad things. And so he puts the law into place. You don't just get to go grab women and do whatever you want with them. You're going to take, if you want her, then she's going to be your wife. 
And here's what you're going to do with that Canaanite girl that's so beautiful. You're going to take her home and shave her head <laughs> and cut off her nails and put off all the adornments of, of, of her Canaanite life, and you're going to let her live and mourn for her parents for a full month before you take her as your wife. Then we'll see how pure your intentions really are. Because you're going to make an Israelite out of her. Okay? She's not your Canaanite girl to do with as you please. Now, if there ain't a lesson there for this day and age, I don't know where is one. Young men, and I will say the same thing, young women, to the young men out there and the young women out there, whether they're in the faith or out of the faith, they are not your plaything. You know, we talk about sexuality in this nation today, in this day and age, as though we have a right to it. As though it's ours and we can just do anything we want with it, rather than, no, no, all the members of my body belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and have to be and ought to be used in His glory. And for His glory and according to what His Word says. And we ought to be careful how we deal with one another and how we deal with people in our relationships particularly. And if you're a young person who's in a relationship with a person who isn't saved, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, you have a great duty and responsibility besides the fact that God says we shouldn't be in relationships, Christians, with people who are not Christians. That aside, if we are in a relationship with someone who's not a Christian, we have a great duty to shine the light of Jesus Christ to that person. What's in it for me? That's our culture. How can you make me happy today? That's our culture. And look what it's produced. But the life lived and following after Jesus Christ is always others-centered. What can I do for you today? Your needs are more important than my needs today. Oh, if only the church really lived their lives. If we all lived our lives that way. Can you imagine the impact that we would make? You know, again, I'm not trying to hammer on you up here. What the Word of God says is what the Word of God says, and we got to deal with that. We got to deal with it because we got to take that mirror and go, and look at ourselves in light of God's glory and His holy righteousness and say, man, I'm way down here. Lord, help me. Now you're getting somewhere. And so God how can I better serve you? God, how can I better shine the light? This isn't my relationship. It's not my wife. That's your daughter. And so how I ought to treat your daughter. And so on and so forth. Huh. Verse 15. Uh, if a man has two wives, another cheerful occurrence, and one is loved and the other is unloved, you know, that, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now, the perfect example, this is Jacob, uh, Rachel, and Leah. Remember, 
Jacob, and for those of you who, who aren't the, the, been in church for a long time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has a brother named Esau. He steals his birthright through deception. Then he heads for the hills. And while he's running away, he runs right into God's will. And he comes to the house of his uncle Laban. And there he meets, it was back, okay, back in those days to marry your cousins. Uh, he meets Rachel, right? Who immediately is like, wow, you know, wow, you know, whoa, oh my goodness gracious. And he loves her immediately and he wants to marry her. And his uncle Laban, who he doesn't realize is as big of a cheat as he is, says, absolutely, you can marry her. Work for me seven years and she's yours. Seven years? Ah, no problem. It says seven years seemed like a day to Jacob. He loved Rachel so much. But that night, and if we're being honest, probably he got pickled at the wedding and he didn't know what was going on. And Laban did the switcheroo and sent Leah in, the older sister. And Jacob wakes up in the morning and wrong wife goes to Laban, what is this thing you've done to me? Don't worry, Jacob, have I got a deal for you. Seven more years and you can have Rachel too. <clears throat> right? Ah, and Jacob works the seven more years. And Laban's, you know, in his, in his mind, in the culture of that day, the firstborn daughter, she's got to marry her off first. She can't marry off. I'll tell you, it's, 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 everything's out of order here. So he gets rid of Leah, he gets rid of Rachel. So now Jacob has two wives. Wow, now you have two wives, Jacob. Nika. Nightmare. Nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. Not anywhere in the Bible where there's more than one wife. Nightmare, and it ain't the woman's fault before we get all snickering, right? It ain't the women's fault. It was never, ever, ever God's intention. Jesus said, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be cleaved to his wife, and the two, the two, the two shall become one flesh. Well, the two can become one flesh, and then these two, no, 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 no. That's not what the word says, and that's not what it means. So anytime there was anything that went outside of what God's original intentions are, you can expect trouble. And so that was the case with Rachel and Leah and Jacob. Leah, and it says one you loved and one is unloved, or one is loved and one is hated. It's, it's in comparison is what it's talking about. Jacob didn't hate Leah, but he hated her compared to how much he loved Rachel, okay? That's the idea. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Leah gave birth to his firstborn son. His firstborn son came through Leah. But what Jacob did, if you read, if you, well, we, I got the verses written down here. Uh, in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 22, if you want to turn there, or I'm sorry, rather, um, I, those are the wrong verses. That's, that's in, in consideration of Reuben. I didn't write the verses down. Jacob treated Joseph as his firstborn because he was the firstborn of, of Rachel, of his beloved Rachel. Well, you guys know, Joseph, the coat of many colors, he was Jacob's favorite son. He loved Joseph, and part of the reason he loved Joseph was because he was the firstborn to Rachel, whom he loved. And so he treated Joseph and ended up blessing Joseph as though Joseph were his firstborn, even though Reuben was his firstborn. And then in the Genesis 35, 22 and Genesis 49, 3 to 4, if you want to write that down, Genesis chapter 35, verse 22 and Genesis chapter 49, verses 3 to 4, that deals with Reuben and why he lost that birthright, okay? Reuben lost the birthright because he defiled his father's bed, and we'll leave it at that. You can read those verses and see for yourself. And Jacob talks to, 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 to Reuben about that. That notwithstanding, what God doesn't want here under the Mosaic law to happen now in the nation of Israel is for people to take that and use it as an excuse 
to not do the right thing in their family. You understand what I'm saying? I don't care what the extenuating circumstances are over here. People love making excuses. I mean, I can find a reason to do just about anything, right? Especially if I'm using you as an excuse or as a reason. Well, the, over here, we'll see this happen and this, so that. No, no, no. I want you to do the right thing, okay? I don't want you. You're not Jacob. This isn't Rachel and Leah. I want you to do the right thing. The firstborn son, if you got more than one wife, if you were dumb enough to take more than one wife, right? and you're dealing with all the family issues that are arising out of it, you don't get, because your second wife is your favorite, you don't get to give the inheritance to her firstborn son. That's not the way it works. There'll be chaos in the land. Remember how that worked for Jacob's family. Remember how they treated Joseph, right? They knew Joseph was going to get the birthright. They knew Joseph was going to get the blessing of their father. He was clearly head and tail, head and shoulders above, favored above his brothers. So what did they do? They plotted against him. They threw him in a pit. And they sold him into slavery. Nothing good is going to come of it. God says, it's impartial here. I don't care how you feel about a situation. I don't care how you feel about the circumstance. I don't care which one of these women is your favorite and which kid is your favorite. You're going to do the right thing because that's what I've commanded you to do, right? That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. We talked about this in the first service a little bit. We should never, ever countenance. We should never countenance sin. In other words, because it's this person, it's okay. Because it's that person, and I'm close to this person, they're a wonderful person. Oh, so, you know, it's, so we just, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. That's the problem in the day and age that we live in, is people want to countenance everything. People want to take these extenuating circumstances and then make it a blanket new rule. No, no, no. God established his law through his word, and it stands forever. It doesn't matter. People say, what if one of your kids ended up being gay? What would you do if one of your kids ended up being gay? Like, what, what do you think I'm going to say? I'm going to drown them in the river? You know what I'm saying? I would love them. I would love them just as much as I loved them before they came to me and said that they were gay. I would, I would treat them as lovingly as I did before. I would speak the truth to them. I would say the word of God says this is an abomination and homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not because I don't like homosexuals. In fact, every gay person I've ever known has been pretty much wonderful, right? That I've spent time with or that I've worked with. They've been wonderful people. We don't countenance sin. It's sin because it's sin. And that goes for me too, just because I'm doing something doesn't somehow make it, okay, well, God winks at that one. No, no, no. What's sin is sin, what's right is right, and there's no in-between with God, okay? Thank God he's gracious, he's merciful. You do the right thing, God says. The inheritance goes to your son. You don't countenance the situation, okay? God's word says what God's word says. Same thing goes for verse 18 when we're talking about not countenancing sin. Verse 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him into the elders of the city, to the gate of the city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So, yikes, right? So you shall put away, the, I'm so glad I didn't grow up in, you know what I'm saying? Because smoked, I would have been done, right? 
It's like, let's see, okay, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, check, 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 uh-oh, rut-row raggy, you know. Uh, thank God we're not under the law. And they shall, um, all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. And here it is. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and, fe- uh, hear and fear. Now, some of you dads, you've, you've, maybe you even have the t-shirt, or you've seen it, you know, the, the first guy that comes around for your daughter, you shoot him, and then the word gets around. You know what I'm saying? The word gets around, just not, 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 just don't come here. No, nothing for you here, right? Ha, ha, ha. But God, in a very real way, it wasn't just about this family and their situation. Again, God, everything that he commands us to do is not just for us. It's for the rest of the world. We are to be a light. We are to be a city on a hill. We're not to countenance sin. So you have this child. It doesn't say, and if you can't stand him, right? And if you're so sick of this kid, you can't deal with him one more day. Well, we got an out for you. Whoop, we can smoke him out with stones, right? No, no, no. That's not what it's talking about here. It doesn't matter how beloved this child is to you, okay, under the Mosaic law. It doesn't matter how much you love this child. This child is stubborn and rebellious and will not heed the instructions of their mother or their father. They're a glutton and a drunkard, and they won't do anything God's way, and they will not obey the law of Moses. You must put away the evil from among you, right? You must put away the evil from among you. The idea here is that it's sin, it's wickedness. It's an abomination before God. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, right? Pride is like sorcery in God's economy. He hates it. It literally makes him sick. He said, because of these things, I'm vomiting the inhabitants of the land out from the land, and I'll do the same to you if you guys do these things. Interestingly enough, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, when you go, you know, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days where people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of good, pro, proud, boastful, disobedient to parents. Isn't that an interesting one? Well, haven't kids always been disobedient to their parents? Isn't that the way it's always been? Well, to an extent, absolutely, right? That's a part of growing up. That's a part of learning right from wrong and the discipline and correction that goes along with that. What Paul is talking about when he talks to Timothy is there's going to be an attitude amongst the world and in the cultures of the world where disobedient to, disobedience to parents is not only normal, it's celebrated. Your parents are idiots. You don't have to do what your parents tell you to do. Your parents don't know anything. Your parents are bigots. Your parents are religious fanatics. Your parents are this, your parents are that. You don't have to do what your parents tell you to do. You don't have to respect your parents. There's a spirit that Paul talks about. There's an attitude that's going to be pervasive in the world in the last days. That's what it means by disobedience. It's not just that kids, of course kids disobey. But it's going to be accepted, it's going to be celebrated, it's going to be, that's what the world is. Your kid does whatever they want to do. And the culture and the society and the, and the civilization that lives that way and that allows that rebellion to come up, literally to come up, to grow up in their midst is doomed. Is doomed. And it's, it's, it's a way bigger thing than just you have to teach kids to be obedient so that they obey all the laws and blah, 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 blah. We've talked about this before. No, no, we have to teach our children to obey and fear the voice of God. So when you take, you know, your two-year-old, 
okay? And you take the, you take the, little, the little paint stir stick and you go tick, tick, tick on their backside and they go, <laughs> you know, act like you threw them down the stairs, right? The reason that you do that, the reason that you correct them, you're training them to obey your voice so that when they're older, they will be also trained to obey the voice of God, right? How many times has God had to take you to the woodshed, right? And you ever say, how, often, how long is it going to take me till I finally get the lesson, right? Well, according to God's scripture, it starts when they're this big. It starts when they're this big to train up your child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart away from it. That's why we train them so that they'll obey and listen to the voice of God. We live in a culture, we live in a society where children do whatever they want. And part of it is absolutely by design. Absolutely by design. The family is entirely divided. In everything that we do, we're divided. We don't do anything together anymore. You ever hear the term divide and conquer? Hello? We don't do anything as a family anymore. This kid's here, this kid's here, that kid's here, that kid's here, and mom's over there, and dad's over there. It's all during the week with work and school, and then it's on the weekend. And then we come to church and we separate the family. We send the kids over there and this over there. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not, again, I'm not saying all this stuff is bad in and of itself. The point I'm making is we don't have that family togetherness that we used to have. I was talking to someone before service about the simplicity of the olden times and the olden days. You know, it'd be one thing. You have so much on your plate that you don't even realize and so many stresses and so many things going on in your life because of the time and the culture we live in that you don't even realize. And we're manic because of it. We're manic because of it. It was not originally God's, God's intention. The point here is rebellion, disobedience to parents was never supposed to be tolerated. And it wasn't just about a kid knowing their place. A kid knowing their place. No, no. It was about the integrity and the health of the nation as a whole. Uh, and then we're going to finish up here in verse 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And if you turn with me to Galatians, we're going to finish, finish up with this. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse... For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but instead the man who does them shall live by them. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, and here it is, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
Now, the idea here in that culture and in that, in, that, in that day and age was that a person who is hanging on a tree is neither on the ground nor in the heavens, but they're in a limbo. In other words, they've been rejected by the spiritual and they've been rejected by man. They are absolutely cast out and they are utterly accursed. That's the idea there. And so what God is telling the nation of Israel is even if a person is guilty of a crime and where the punishment is that severe... At the end of that day, you're going to take them down and you're going to put them in the ground. And it's interesting because here it says in Galatians, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus Christ, as we know, he became sin for us. Remember, that's, that's the song we sing. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become children of God. And he was hung on a tree in limbo, rejected by man, and because of our sin on him, rejected by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of the law that God gave Moses to make sure that they were taken down before the end of the day and buried in the tomb, that's why Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus Christ's body down before the end of the day and before the Passover and put him in the, in the tomb in the tomb. And Jesus Christ became a curse. I love this. And this is where it finishes up. That the blessing of Abraham, okay, which again is the promise. The promise of Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you, through your family. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that is us, that's non-Jews, in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Why? Why do we have to receive it this way? And why did Jesus Christ have to become the curse for us? Because we are lawbreakers. We are lawbreakers. The Gentiles, the law was not given to us, and we could never keep the law. We are under a curse, therefore, according to the Mosaic law, because we do not and we cannot keep the law. And so what happened is Jesus Christ took that curse upon himself. He literally took your judgment from God because of your sin upon himself and was hung there in limbo between heaven and earth for us because that's the, that's the God that we serve, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and thank you uh, for your word, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you so much, Father, for what you've accomplished for us, Lord, through Jesus Christ, your son. Uh, Lord, we pray and ask, Lord, that you would help us to not have divided hearts, Lord, but that you would draw us um, closer and closer, Lord, into the loving, into your loving arms, Father. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, and uh, help the things of this world to become more and more uh, dim to us, Father, less and less visible, Father, as the things of your kingdom and the things of uh, Jesus Christ become more and more clear in our hearts, Lord. We pray that that would be the reason we get up in the morning and the reason we go to bed at night. And we know, Lord, we're never ever going to be exactly like Jesus. We're never going to be uh, all that we want to be in you, Father, until you come and send Jesus to receive us to yourself, Lord. But we want to do everything in our power to, to get as close as we can in this life, Lord, to seek after you and to seek to be your emissaries, Lord, to be uh, your ambassadors, Lord, to be your heralds uh, into a world, Father, where people are being lied to every single day about what is truth, about what the Bible says, and about who you, who you are, Father. And we pray that you would help us to, to, to not only rightly divide the word of truth in our own hearts, Lord, but to rightly divide it as we give it out and as we sow the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord. 
We pray that you would help us to reflect his truth and also, Lord, to reflect his love. We pray that there would be no judgment in us, Father, that there would be no anger, bitterness in us, Lord, or a cold or calloused heart, Lord, towards the people of this, of this world who don't know Jesus Christ and are therefore living in sin, but instead, Lord, we would see them as they are, as sheep without a shepherd, and we would have compassion on them, Father, and we would be praying for them and seeking for any opportunity we might find, Lord, to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ so that you could rescue them the same way you did us, Lord. Thank you for all you've done, and thank you for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.